Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Year's of the Americans. It is Tuesday, September 22nd. There are just 101 days left in the year in 2020. And whether 2020 has been a tough year for you, like for many of us, or it's been through its uh, ups and downs, a positive year, I wish you strength and courage as we finish out the last 101 days of the year as strong and as positively as we can. It's also 42 days away from the election. Uh, that could really change the course of our personal and our culture and the world. Um, so I uh, encourage you to vote early if you can. Make sure you are registered to vote. Uh, still within the window where you can fill out the census. So make sure you get all of that taken care of. Uh, today's really exciting for us. It is the beginning of us going to a once-a-week format. So as we navigate, uh, or as we share this very special episode 77 here with you, um, know that going forward, we will not have any more episodes on Fridays, but come back every Tuesday, and I will join you and share with you another fun conversation that we had. Uh, today's episode 77, and it is one of the most fun things that I've done. It is a conversation that I was looking very, very much forward to having uh, with a good friend of mine, Elaine Dang, and two of her colleagues, Samuel Huang and Harrison Lung, uh, who are all uh, members of firm uh, McKinsey. And they are also members of the Asian ERG there called Asians at McKinsey. And together, they created a report about six weeks ago called COVID-19 and Advancing Asian American Recovery. And it's been globally well-received. Um, and it's been really, really cool uh, to see the report make its rounds. And super excited that they have accepted my invitation to come on the Asian Americans to share their stories, their personal stories of where they come from, what they've been through, and what they look forward to, uh, but also to share a little bit about the report, how it came about, uh, what they're most excited for, and um, how the report has already been used by organizations, small and large, uh, to really make sure that our community, the Asian American community, is not overlooked in our recovery and to make sure that our voices are not as ignored as we once were. So, and a big shout out to Elaine for helping us make this happen and to Samuel and Harrison and to the rest of the authors and the supporters and the researchers of the report and to everybody at Asians at McKinsey. Uh, thank you very, very much uh, for your time and your efforts. If you haven't had a chance, I will link the report in the show notes. So I do encourage you to go check it out. If you're listening to us on Tuesday morning, uh, we are going to be having our uh, Beyond the Resumes Career Chats webinar this afternoon on Tuesday at 4.30 p.m. Be sure to check that out. We're going to have a very fun conversation with Sarah Park, who's the Career Services Director at Harvey Mudd College, Sun Wen, a friend of the show, who is a senior recruiting lead at LinkedIn, and Carl Chen, who is the founder of Subtle Asian Networking. And as always, I want to thank our sponsor, Coba Coffee, for their support of the show. Visit coba.coffee to get your uh, chocolate coffee bars. Get your chocolate coffee bars at coba.coffee. Make sure to use code DAA or podcast to get your 15% off. Thanks again for tuning in. So excited to share this episode with you. So without further ado, here now are Elaine, Harrison, and Samuel on Dear Asian Americans. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Dear Asian Americans. Uh, wherever you are, whenever you may be listening to this, uh, we wish you health and happiness and safety. Um, in addition to all the challenges of 2020 from a public health perspective, um, as we record this uh, on the 9th of September, and as you're hearing this in the middle of September, uh, there are now fires all, all across the West Coast. Weather is bonkers. People are having gender reveal parties and setting forests ablaze. 
So in addition to all that we have going on, um, perhaps an extra incentive to stay home and safe with your families. Um, and 2020 has been quite a year globally. Um, and as we all know too well, personally here in the Asian American community, it has been an extra challenging year um, filled with crimes against Asian Americans, uh, both verbal and physical. And it's in, a, in, in its um, extra impact on our small business economy and that small business economy that is often silent and invisible and things not of being on paper sometimes. And we know that because we have family and friends that still depend on that economy. And we know that because we talk about it. But outside of our community, we sometimes wonder, are our voices being heard? From time to time, there'll be a news article about the disproportionate distribution of PPP funds or other funds that don't trickle down to, into our communities. Um, seems almost every day we hear of another small business in our communities closing down, uh, unfortunately, for good, because perhaps of poor planning, but just the lack of resources. All in all, 2020 has been a challenging year for us as a community, um, especially in the small business communities in our cultural hubs all across the country. And so I here with uh, three guests and three friends of mine, um, who, in addition to their day job um, at their firm, um, have taken time, energy, and, and really love and care uh, to create a report from an objective perspective that shines a very much needed light on how COVID has impacted the Asian American community, how it continues to impact it, and how we can make sure that one, it doesn't happen again, and two, how we can come out of this. So uh, super excited. Um, I've been looking forward to this for a really long time since the report first came out um, a month ago. So would love to welcome Elaine, Samuel, and Harrison here to the show. Hi, guys. Hey. Hi. Thanks Hello, so much Jerry. for having us. Thanks, guys. We're in four different parts of the country, um, from L.A. to Colorado to Texas to New York, and so grateful, actually, that we can uh, do this in 2020 and, and leverage technology tools to for, for us to have this conversation. Um, all three of you are um, members or, I guess, employees at McKinsey and Company, uh, the global consulting firm, and also members of Asians at McKinsey, which is the employee resource group focused on Asian um, across the globe, but here in America, obviously, more Asian-American experiences. Um, Harrison, you are a partner there. Uh, Samuel, you're a senior, senior business analyst. And Elaine, you are an engagement manager. Um, so it's really nice to get different perspectives and I wanted to bring you guys together to get your thoughts on your own experiences, learn a little bit about your own story, but really focus our conversation today on how the report came about, what you guys learned, what you continue to learn, and what you hope its impact is going to be in the long tail. So uh, let's start with you, Elaine. Um, Elaine Deng, she is uh, from uh, San Francisco office. She's an engagement manager. She's been at McKinsey for a couple years, um, three years now, actually. Three um, years, yes. Been yeah, it's been it. three years. Uh, fun fact, Great. Elaine and I were friends through business school. Um, she was at Yale School of Management. I was at Michigan. But we were in the similar same program called the consortium. So we got to meet each other through a pre-business school retreat or orientation or conference rather. And so it's been five years. And, and so it's been really for, for, foremost while we have the other folks on the call and people are listening. Really, really amazing, Elaine, to see your development and your growth and, you know, sort of your your trajectory into consulting for the last three years. 
And, and so you were really the cornerstone and the reason why the four of us are having this conversation today. I was really blown away and so excited when you posted about the report. I messaged you right away and I said, <laughs> hey, can we do this and you know get everybody in the same room so we can learn more? And it was an absolute yes. And you rallied the other guys together. And so before we talk about the report, share with us a little bit more about Elaine. Definitely. Well, first, thank you so much, Jerry. Um, and I'm a huge fan of Dear Asian Americans. I think what you're doing is incredible. Um, and so it's an honor to be a part of, yeah, you, the, the folks that you've had on before and just to be able to tell our story is um, a great opportunity. So thanks for having us. Um, so the question is my, my story before. I know that this podcast won't be entirely on my story, so I'll keep it short. Um, so I think the way that I think about myself, uh, is in a few ways. So to start, I think what makes my experience really unique and important to me is one, um, my family, my, both my parents are refugees from the Vietnam war. Um, so they came to the United States in the early eighties, um, after escaping Vietnam, uh, they're one of the quote unquote boat people. Um, and so they uh, came to the U.S. Uh, with with no uh, college or high school education um, and moved over here and had me and my two other siblings. So that's shaped a huge part of my kind of perspective and upbringing uh, and, and how I see the world um, primarily through that. Kind of the the other part about my life that I think is also really important um, and you'll you'll see co come out in this report is also um, from that upbringing. I grew up uh, low income uh, in the U.S., which is kind of a rare thing that people don't think about with Asian Americans. Um, I grew up in public housing, grew up on public assistance programs. And when I was in sixth grade, um, had the opportunity, uh, we're very lucky to essentially move public housing units from a lower income community in, the, in, the, in San Diego to a high income community, where essentially I got access to amazing schools and amazing public education that I really think um, is how I was able to go to schools like UC Berkeley, go to school like Yale, um, and eventually join McKinsey. Um, so that, those are kind of big, big parts of my life. Um, professionally, um, after graduating from UC Berkeley, I joined Teach for America um, and taught high school math uh, on the Navajo Nation, um, driven by, again, my, my uh, appreciation for education and, and wanting to bring as much as I could high quality education um, to, to kids who need it and may not get it. Um, I've worked uh, in Kenyan and education as well as uh, some startups there. Um, huge part of my, my, my uh, kind of how I see the world as well. Um, worked for uh, Teach for America in terms of being a part of the recruitment team. And I think through all my experiences realized that the people that I was looking up to, the people whose jobs I, whose jobs I wanted to have, they all had this experience uh, in management consulting. And I actually personally tried to run away from it because I heard about it and I thought, I don't think corporate America is fit for me. But then I, I met just different people with different personality types, different values, things that I cared about who really wanted to make a difference in the world. And I thought, you know, let me give this a chance. Um, let me actually see what this is all about because some reason that, you know, things kept on leading me towards uh, consulting. So that's how I am where I am today. Awesome. Thank you. Let's go over to Texas. And in Texas, we are, we are, well, he works out of the New York office at temporarily, I guess, as, as common as it is in 2020, um, Samuel is back home um, in, in Texas. So uh, Samuel Huang, uh, welcome to the show and share with us a little bit about you. Thanks, Jerry. Uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm Samuel Huang. I 
grew up and I was born and raised in Plano, Texas, which is one of the bigger suburbs of Dallas. Um, I think my my story and my identity really revolves around my parents as well. So both my parents came from China relatively early in uh, their youth. So they've been here for you know almost 30, 40 years. Um, similar to I think many immigrants at that time, they like came with just a couple dollars in their pocket. Uh, both of them ended up going to graduate school and got uh, business degrees. My dad has been working in the cosmetics industry. Um, and then my mom also, they met at work and then my mom actually founded her own company and has her own business. And so um, I think that that entrepreneurial spirit and the drive of you know succeeding in a new country has has been something that's been part of my life and something that I really look up to from them. Um, so I am from Plano and specifically East Plano, um, where I think there's actually a lot of diversity in this area. And so I actually graduated from the largest graduating class in the nation of my year. So we had 1500 kids graduating from my senior class. Um, so it was a very interesting uh, and big high school. And with that, I think came a lot of diversity in terms of racial composition, as well as uh, income. And so we had some of the uh, lowest income students in our school district. So the kind of highest number of food stamps or, or like, uh, I think it's called like lunch assistance program students in our school, as well as a concentration of um, international baccalaureate degree students who I think were very focused on education and tutoring and all this stuff. Um, so there was a huge difference in, I think, educational attainment at our school, as well as racial composition. I think throughout high school and in my youth, I, I didn't really consider my uh, Asian American identity as something that was super important to me. Um, I did, you know, Boy Scouts, I became an Eagle Scout. I played bassoon in band instead of a string instrument in orchestra. And I kind of pretty actively made those choices to not be Asian looking back on it. Um, but then as I got to college, I went to college at Harvard, um, you know, again, diversity, but in a very different sense in that everybody was just a little bit more woke about their identities. And so through that, learned a lot more about Asian American history. And I, I distinctly remember I was in a constitutional law class and we were learning about Korematsu in, in the history of the Supreme Court and the history of Japanese internment. And I was like, what? I never even heard about this in all, in a, entire year of American history at the AP and IB level. Um, and so I, I think I started realizing that there was a lot more to learn. So I got more involved in, in Asian social groups. I choreographed for an Asian American dance troupe um, at Harvard and kind of got really more into my Asian American identity there. Um, I have not had a lot of work experience, but um, I did a, a brief internship at an investment bank I actually interned in Shanghai for a summer, which was a great experience, and then uh, recruited into McKinsey as a business analyst. So I've been here for my professional career. Um, have had, I think, a great community in AAM. Some of the very first people that I met once I got to the company were members of Asians at McKinsey and leaders in it. And so I, I quickly got super involved and learned about what it was like for Asian Americans in the workplace. Um, and have just been super passionate about 
driving some of this research forward and being able to tell those stories um, through the work that we do at McKinsey now. That's awesome, man. Thanks for sharing that. Harrison, also from the New York office, Harrison Lung is a partner at McKinsey and also a leader of Asians at McKinsey. Share with us a little bit about your story. Great. Thanks a lot, Jerry. I think uh, before I give you my self-introduction, just want to thank you again for uh, providing this platform for us to share our story. Uh, and broader um, is to shine a light, I think, on this very important and critical topic, particularly in the world of COVID. Um, so my story actually began uh, in Hong Kong, which is sort of where uh, I was born. Um, similar to Lane, my parents were uh, immigrants from Taiwan and China to Hong Kong. Uh, and I was born and, and raised there. Um, as a toddler, I uh, immigrated to Canada with, with my family, particularly Toronto, and ended up sp uh, forming, spending the formative years uh, of my life uh, in Toronto. I uh, grew up in a, I would say, low income to middle income you know, family, single income. Dad worked uh, for a long time as a, basically a security guard in a hotel. Uh, and really, I think, instituted you know, the notion of hard work and the value of a dollar. In, uh, in, in, in my personal life. Um, was fortunate enough to go to University of Waterloo, which is one of the top engineering programs uh, in, in Canada, um, and then ended up working uh, in the tech and telecom industry uh, there for a couple of years. Was exposed to consultant uh, when I was at that um, company and ended up joining Accenture uh, in New York. Um, spent a good number of uh, uh, years uh, in, in, in New York, uh, traveling both domestically as well as internationally, as well as doing my MBA uh, at the same time. I ended up joining McKinsey uh, back in 2010, so it's close to 11 years now, uh, originally from our Hong Kong office. Uh, I was there for about seven, eight years, uh, with the last two or three years uh, based in our uh, New Jersey office here. Uh, and within sort of my uh, tenure, my career at McKinsey, have worked in over 20 different countries, very ge geographically spread, uh, and specifically focused on our tech and telecom, as well as digital related topics. Uh, and I would say my aha moment uh, in, in terms of my involvement within the McKinsey Employee Resource Group, uh, Asians and McKinsey, um, pretty much came upon my move back uh, to stateside uh, in 2018. I think as I was growing up uh, in Canada and the US, um, the notion on Asian leadership or Asian representation uh, in the management ranks um, either didn't resonate or really didn't affect me, right? And I was taught to you know, study hard, do well, do well particularly in the mathematics and, and you'll get a, a good paying job. Uh, and in a way for me, as, as I was growing up in the firm in Hong Kong and Asia, I also didn't really see that because you know, many of our Asian uh, leaders there in the Asian offices are Asian, right? Uh, and in a way, I grew up in that environment uh, within the firm. It is not until relocating back to stateside uh, in 2018, where I was sitting in a number of leadership meetings. These could be performance review meetings, recruiting uh, meetings, as well as just our client service team leadership meetings, where I've actually realized I'm oftentimes the only Asian or East Asian uh, in that room. So it is through this moment where I became really passionate uh, about you know, being part of this community, right, of Asian advancement within McKinsey, but also banding together, not just internally, but also externally with other companies, as well as other organizations at the same time. Thanks for the context. I, I think when it comes to global organizations, particularly in consulting, where 
the talent pool overlaps quite a bit. And there's, as you guys have worked in different offices with different teams, it's often really hard for us Asian Americans to form our own identity as that because somebody who is at the very, you know, executive ranks or a client might look at the firm as a whole and saying, hey, and, and this was the case when I was at Accenture. It's like, hey, you guys are like 30% Asian. I said, yeah, but if you take out like our colleagues in India and China, the number is actually not that high. And even then, if you take the folks who are not actually Asian American, but on H-1B visas or on whatever visas here, if you take that slice of the pie out, we're even smaller. And, and so that identity is so unique and it is often ignored. Um, it's difficult to target even from a programming perspective and a conversation perspective, because as the three of you have shared your unique stories, and if we add mine as a fourth, there are four very unique Asian American stories with different backgrounds. And, um, you know, something we'll talk about when we get into the report is this notion that we have to set the foundation and the table to get the audience or the reader to understand that we are not a monolith. Um, Elaine, you mentioned that, you know, being a low-income Asian refugee family is something, is a concept that might not be so familiar to people, even within our own community, that were raised in a certain environment. And as you said, Samuel, like when you go to Harvard, it's not, it's technically diverse on a, if you take a photo, but people had access to that education opportunity. So that, definition of diversity is also different. Um, and so I, I want to spend a few minutes talking to you guys and getting your thoughts on, you know, how has your identity evolved through, you know, and I don't want to just say your, your career, but just through academics, career, and just life in general. Um, if, if we take the three of you guys collectively, it's such a rich experience of multi-continental industry, you know, and, and perspectives. Um, and, and let's also, you know, talk about how Asians at McKinsey has evolved and, and has played a critical role in sort of that informal network that we so crave and oftentimes is not available to us. And let's admit the privilege up front. Not everybody gets to have an Asian ERG like you guys do at AAM. And I had at Accenture. Um, at WeWork, they gave us one for everybody. It was called We of Color. And so... If you had any color, you were sort of put into the We of Color Slack channel and they said, figure it out. And um, wow. th dare I say, we were not, our, our skin complexion was not dark enough to have as much robust conversations about our needs in a very diverse global organization. So um, if, you, if you belong to a company that has an ERG, consider it, consider it a blessing and get involved. If you don't, bark up the tree, um, learn, learn from these folks and others and, and, and potentially uh, work, work to start one, but, um, yeah, share, and anybody can go, um, share with us your sort of thoughts and, and your observations and your own experiences, um, in particular in with a particular lens to your Asian American identity, um, at the workplace and at school. Yeah, let me, start. let me, oh. oh, go ahead, Samuel. <laughs> okay. Um, from, from the perspective of a millennial on the cusp of Gen Z, um, <laughs> I think I, I really related to Fresh Off the Boat when that came out on TV um, in the sense that as a kid growing up in like suburban Texas, uh, my identity, my Asian identity wasn't necessarily the most important thing to me. And a lot of it, I think, was um, unconsciously just trying to fit in. Like I, I 
distinctly remember really relating to that scene in Fresh Off the Boat, where he goes to the supermarket with his mom and wants to get Lunchables instead of Asian food. Because <laughs> I, I clearly remember that happening to me too. Um, and so I think I, when I was a kid, and this was kind of pre-college, it was all just about like, I don't need to be Asian and there's nobody's judging me for it. And I think that was a, a great fortune to be in a pretty diverse area of Plano, Texas as well. But like nobody was judging me for being Asian. I didn't have to like be Asian just for the sake of being Asian. Um, but that I think there was more appreciation that came into that I, aspect of my identity when I got to college and am now working um, in that, you know, how great is it that people now like actively want to get boba together which was something that i did 15 years ago when it was just like in the back of like a little lunch shop right um and so i think it's been a, a process of learning and learning a, a ton of history and about the history of immigrants in america and also hearing the stories of my family members and um other immigrant uh experiences about how different and how unique the Asian immigration story has been. Um, and I think one of the great things at McKinsey is that, you know, as an ERG, we aren't just here to provide like a social aspect for our members. Um, this is not just like getting Korean barbecue on a weekend and like going to karaoke. We actually have a ton of professional development resources and also a, a stronger external facing thing. You know, for example, this podcast about trying to push out new insightful research and publishing data about Asian Americans because when we talk to Asian American organizations in other places, they say like, you know, we've got that social aspect going and there's tons of Asians and they like karaoke, um, but we don't really know what to do with the energy of this group. And I think one of the most motivating things that have honestly kept me at McKinsey is that we are answering a ton of these questions about what are the leadership outcomes of Asians in corporate America and what's happening to Asian Americans in the time of COVID um, and helping to like shed a light on that and also share it with the rest of the world. Um, and so I think that's a really unique aspect of being an AAM that I've loved. I love that. Thanks, Samuel. Um, I definitely want to connect. I, I uh, So I think for me, just to start, I think for me, my... Uh, Similar parallels, but quite different from what Samuel just shared. I was just like reflecting on my Asian American identity and I just saw like basically myself first running away from it and now like running towards it to like better understand who I am. And so similarly, when I was young, I remember when I was really young, maybe in uh, maybe when I was around first grade, um, me and my cousins, I think we had like 15 of my cousins, first and second cousins, all in the same school. I remember defending them against um, kind of, you know, being being made fun of. So like ching chong jokes, the slanted eyes. I was the one that would always like yell to other kids and really, really defend them. And then when I grew older and cared more about fitting in and wanting to wanting to not be that person that stood up, but really wanted to kind of blend in the background, especially when I moved um, you know, in sixth grade to that high income uh, area of San Diego, I remember distinctively, and this is like one of the most horrifying things for me to admit, but I remember in high school, I had friends that said something to me in, in the vein of, oh, Elaine, I forget that you're Asian. Like, you don't even seem Asian to me. And I found that to be the biggest compliment. And I thought to myself, wow, I'm actually blending in as white and that's great. And this is kind of what I want to be because this is cool. 
Um, and so just even remembering my, me thinking that is, is quite horrifying. And I kind of like then saw myself as like, a. then I realized wanting to be white didn't make sense, was, was lots of like self-hate, but became almost like, almost saw myself as like a neutral person without a race. Um, I didn't even really think about my race and my identity. I thought a lot about my socioeconomic upbringing. So I thought a lot about being poor, being raised poor, and brought that into, into my life as I was teaching through Teach for America. Um, and it wasn't until that I moved to Kenya um, that like my identity about being Asian kind of came more to the forefront. Um, part of it was that in Kenya, people were quite surprised. I remember there was a lot of Chinese activity there. Um, and people would see me and, and kind of assume I was part of the, the group of Chinese people that were in Kenya building roads. And when they heard me speak, they would then think I was white. And so people would ask me, okay, are you white? Are you Chinese? Some people even asked me if I was Brazilian because I'm guessing that may be the intersection between the two. Um, and it made me kind of like confront my, my, my race more and, and talk to people about what it was to be Asian American and, and you know, the, the Asians in America. Um, and I actually had a roommate, um, Chris, he'll, he'll love that I'm, I'm using his name, but um, he, we were roommates and I would always make salads and like cook tofu with like in a salad and hummus and all these things. And he would always make dumplings. He's, he's Taiwanese. And one day he just said, Elaine, do you just like hate being Asian? Because you never cook Asian food. I don't really hear you talk about it. Like, what is your deal? And I was thinking to myself, do I have to cook dumplings to be Asian? But it really made me reflect on the fact that I just really hadn't um, thought about my family history and really kind of thought about the qualities of being Asian beyond food and beyond. Um, and since then, it has been kind of a slow journey towards uh, knowing my family history, knowing what it means to be Asian, in particular when it comes to social justice. So that's another part of it. I, I've cared a lot, um, and I'm, I'm just growing in this, but I, I've always thought about, about myself as someone who cared about justice um, and who wanted to help you know, those who are most vulnerable, those who are most oppressed. Um, and I realized that to do this authentically, I had to kind of know where my community and where I fit into this, and I was kind of ignoring that. And so Agents at McKinsey, um, especially during COVID, has been a great place for me to kind of um, not just channel my energy, but learn from other people about, okay, if I care about justice, if I care about equity, if I care about all these things, I should push towards that. But I should then know about myself as well. And, and where do I fit in this? Um, and so that's been just a huge, huge um, place for me to grow, for me to you know, commit my energy towards impact. Um, and to meet folks like Harrison, Samuel, and to reconnect with you, Jerry. So that, that's my story. And I think before uh, Jerry, uh, Elaine, Samuel, before I share sort of my personal uh, identity story, I just want to touch upon, uh, I think, Jerry, the point you had originally made on the, the, the monolith point, uh, which, of course, we'll talk more uh, as we discuss the report. But to me, that's the essence of, of what we're talking about. Um, because even on, on this call, right, there's the four of us. Beyond the genders that, that we're from, right, male versus female, you have representation from Korea, Vietnam, China, Taiwan, Hong Kong, is already very diverse. But we're only a small speck on the geographic, geographical dispersion lens, right? We don't have others from Indonesia or Thailand or even India in, in this conversation. The Asian American community, it's all of that, and then some. Um, you know, we had just talked about also our uh, educational backgrounds. Um, you know, of course, we're all very fortunate. 
enough to have gone to basically all the top schools uh, in the U.S. But there's also a huge number of Asian Americans who are not as fortunate, who are you know either not even college graduates or community college graduates, et cetera, right? So I think it's critically important for us in our positions with our you know posture within the community to uh, speak as one voice because there are others who cannot speak up on their behalf. So it's really about us as a community. Um, in terms of myself personally uh, and, and my identity, I would say growing up in Canada, it's quite normal, right? Um, I think, you know, reflecting and looking back, my parents tried to strive the right balance between a Western upbringing and an Asian upbringing. And what I mean by that is, you know, my parents very much strive for me to do well in sports. So I grew up playing, you know, baseball, basketball, volleyball, all throughout high school. One of the few, I would say, Asians uh, on many of the athletic teams. On the flip side, uh, they always do not let me forget that, you know, as an Asian, right, I still had math classes like Kumon. Uh, I remember having to go to Chinese classes, both Mandarin and Cantonese. And growing up, I, I actually didn't really understand why. Because I'm like, you know, I'm in Canada, I'm in North America. Why do I need something like this? I think I didn't get that level of appreciation until more recently where I realized, you know, this linkage to to my identity as an Asian, as well as in a way, the roots, the cultural roots that I do have, right? Uh, and, and that became much more evident uh, after my most recent stint uh, living in Hong Kong from 2010 to 2017, 2018, where I spent uh, quite a number of years uh, of my professional life there. Uh, and during my uh, move from uh, Hong Kong back to the U.S. Uh, at that time, I think just uh, linking to, to what Samuel has said, that was actually the point where uh, Crazy Rich Asian, uh, the movie, was actually being uh, uh, you know, released. Um, funny enough, uh, I was actually on the same flight uh, as uh, Michelle Yao from Hong Kong to New York as she was flying to uh, New York. Uh, to do uh, the, the press junket uh, for the movie. Um, in fact, she and I actually swapped seats uh, because of, of, of personal reasons. Um, but I thanked her. I, I thanked her at that time for being a role model uh, and, and being you know, a core part of, of, of the representation for us in Hollywood. Uh, and I think that was, a, I think also a little bit of foreshadowing uh, with my involvement with, with McKinsey and, and AAM. Because I think, you know, upon relocating back, it was really what I experienced and what I saw, the passionate group that I had before me with Elaine, Samuel, and a number of others that really wanted me to get involved. Uh, and I think the whole mandate and the whole objective is to have a, a like-minded group of community where we can band together both socially as well as professionally, um, help each other succeed, sharing the stories about the evaluation process, how do you read between the lines uh, in your performance evaluation memos and, and make the right connections um, internally to, to the right sponsors and to the right mentors? Uh, and then lastly is really about what I call leaving it for others. Uh, because I have been you know, fortunate enough to have been an elected partner uh, in a preeminent consulting firm. Uh, but I actually look towards this much broader than myself. How do I help build the next generation leaders, both within McKinsey as well as outside? So that's also where I'm spending a lot of energy today, you know, helping sponsor other colleagues, checking in on them to make sure that we're okay, particularly in the world of COVID and working from home. 
as well as building community linkages to other Asian community and organization groups, as well as other ERGs in consulting firms, in banks, as well as large Fortune 500 companies. I think we can talk just about what we talked about for the next two hours and never get to talking about the report because there's so much richness and there's so much uh, both pain and you know lessons and just perspectives gained. Um, and, and I think we all have a little bit of our own stories where uh, the word assimilation was sort of uh, perhaps, if not the goal, it was silently encouraged by our parents with the best of intent for us to be as successful as we can in this Western world. Um, to the point, Elaine, I have been complimented by white guys all the time saying, you are like the whitest Asian guy that I know. And it's both, you know, but it's like after you're like, oh, that's cool, right? I'm one of the guys. And you're like, what the hell does that mean? Like, oh, yeah. you know. Um, and why do I think that's cool? Right. Yeah. And, you know, I, it, it's weird. Um, so I understand and I'm sure people listening are, are, are nodding along as well. Like, and it's really, really extra exciting and impactful that I think as the three of us or the four of us, the three of you, um, represent one of the biggest brands in professional services where meritocracy seems to be the way in and the way up that you guys have all taken uh, what some may consider um, not the most efficient way to the top or why bring in identity to the mix when it is just work hard and you'll get rewarded to take time out of your careers and the precious time that you have outside of work to build and participate and foster a community in which representation, yes, it's important, but it's what you do with that representation and that platform that matters even more. And so um, let, let's talk about the report. Um, Elaine, we'll, we'll start with you. Um, from, from your perspective and um, from your uh, point of view, where did the idea of commissioning a report in the first place come about and how did it come into fruition? Yeah, I'll um, yeah I'll tell the first part of this story. Then would love to hear from my from my colleagues. Um, so, I think it was perhaps around early May or late April, at least that I got added to a Slack channel. I think called COVID nineteen and AAM. Um, so I I, I am uh, newer to the ERG group. So I only became really involved right around COVID nineteen. Um, again, I had all this energy. I, I was reading about the rise of, you know, xenophobia and discrimination and hate acts against Asian Americans. And at least for me, this is when I get really activated and charged. So I thought, okay, I want to do something. Let, let me start talking to AAM. So I got added to the Slack channel and was kind of reading the various responses. And for me, I think how it got started was, you know, I think that we had all been hearing about different reports. Um, a, a, another ERG group called uh, McKinsey Black Network, MBN had uh, published a report called Investing in Black Lives and Livelihoods that became kind of the, uh, you know, report that everyone was looking at that really kind of shaped the story around Black America. And so I personally was thinking through, okay, what would be the story for Asian Americans? I've been hearing this in the news, but everything seems to be very desperate. It's one article here, one article there. I myself knew that there were, you know, lots of suffering in, in small, medium-sized businesses. I knew personally and just from my own family and networks that mental health was suffering. So I wanted something that kind of put together all these different statistics and data and stories we've been hearing into one place. 
Um, and so throughout the Slack channel, um, kind of through talking to folks um, here as well as other, other folks in the AEM, um, kind of came up with a really high level outline on a Slack channel thread, uh, basically kicked off a call with Harrison, Samuel and Adrian, I think two days later. And that's kind of how we got the ball rolling. Um, so that's kind of, I think from my perspective, how, how this got started. Um, but would love to hear from my colleagues because I think they were thinking about it before I joined that, that Slack channel. That about covers it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I, I think the, the reason that we wanted to do this additionally was the Investing in Black Lives and Livelihoods article, I think really struck a chord um, nationwide. And I think it was important for us to also add the Asian American voice. And then later on, our Hispanic and Latino network also published a piece for that community. So I love that McKinsey has really started to use its weight and throw its voice into the mix. Um, and we wanted to be a part of that. And then also, I think that if you could put the purpose of the article into one sentence, I think it would be to say, um, we want to share facts and figures and data about the Asian American community that business leaders and policymakers likely aren't aware of. Um, and very specifically, I actually, you know, two weeks probably before Elaine's outline came out on the Slack channel, I was in a meeting with um, a, a pretty senior official that was representing a state government in the United States. And they said, you know, like, verbatim they said we do not consider asian americans to be a minority in this state and we will not include them in our covid economic relief initiatives and at that point like i was a business analyst on this team listening into a very senior official saying this and i was quite speechless um and so i think i wanted to join because and make this article my personal response to that um, and actually, just before we started recording this podcast, um, I got a, an email from the partner who's leading that, and they're actually sending out more of this report and like putting it into a pack and, and sharing it with that client. So I think that, that speaks to the that's power incredible. of the McKinsey voice. And I've loved that there's been such a great response to this report. I think, Jerry, a lot of it also, I think, deals with awareness, because I think what experience Samuel just shared is a singular experience that he's had. But in a way, it's much bigger than that. Because right. I think the general consensus with the public is that, oh, you know, the Asian community is doing okay, they're fine, right? It should never be the case, first of all, to be fine, right? We should strive to be better, we should strive to be more. I think secondly is the Asian community is not fine. <laughs> If you look at you know, the analysis and the data that we're able to compile in one place, and the thinking there, by the way, is you know, what better place than McKinsey to put together a very much of a fact-based, research-based report right, on any topic, let alone Asian-Americans, right? It tells you a really rich thread on situations, whether it's frontline workers, disparity in income, SMEs, et cetera, where Asian-Americans are not fine. So we need to help each other and band together. And again, it's not just within the community, but it's also outside of the community. And I feel that if with that stance uh, that's currently in, in place, if us as a group of Asian Americans leaders don't speak up, no one's going to speak up on our behalf. So there's a little bit of a what I call a, a why not us moment here, right? Uh, so I just want to make sure that we you know, echo that within our community and beyond. 
100%. That's the reason I started this podcast. And that's why we started the podcast company to do more of that. Because particularly in our well-intentioned, very meritocracy-based linear thinking parenting that we all grew up in, we were always taught to ask for permission. And if you weren't spoken to, you didn't respond. If you wanted something, and, and so, you know, as, as it relates to storytelling and the podcasting medium, I don't need anybody's permission to press upload on my own platform. I don't need a radio station or a TV station or a book publisher to say, we authorize your story. And that I find extremely uh, empowering and inspiring about you guys, because especially you, Harrison, you are in a position where you can make stuff happen for a lack of a better term. Many times in large organizations, there might be or middle or junior level folks who have a passion to do something, especially for a community. And unfortunately, at times there are many, and I'm sure some exist at McKinsey, some exist at Accenture and any other organization where for a variety of reasons, but one of them being, I don't want to now be the Asian person. I got here fine, hiding my identity. I want my work to speak for itself. We've all heard these things that you don't get the institutional or the leadership support behind this because to embark on something, to put the firm's name on a report and to say, this is how we as a firm feel about this through our research and through the voices of our people, that not only that takes, that takes guts, right? It's to put your reputation on the line and saying, I have no problem saying that this is a problem, right? Samuel, in that scenario where you just gave, how many of those conversations have happened throughout the course of all of our careers where we just suck it up and go, shit, do I say something? And the answer is usually no. And the earlier in our careers where we feel less confident about speaking up at the risk of who knows what, that's a big fear. Um, how many classrooms have we been in before the internet where professors or even classmates make, you know, bluntly racist comments and we don't say anything? And then so what I, what I am really empowered by, at least the, even the idea that this came into fruition and that you guys embarked on it is the fact that you guys decided to use the opportunity, not just the three of you. And, and there's actually three other people want to give a big shout out to Adrian Kwok, Michael Park, and Emily Yue, who played a critical role, the six of you guys, and even more people behind the scenes to get this report. But this has more credibility and more authority because it wasn't just six Asian people who happen to work at McKinsey who got together off hours to do this. Like it's literally an official report of the firm. And, and so that is to me, a kudos to you guys, right? And, and kudos to, you know, the other people in the network and in the system. Um, because you're right, Harrison, if we don't do it, we're always going to, and especially at a place like a consulting firm, we're all fine. We, we all got in, right? We're all, relatively educated. We're, we're financially doing okay. So if that's people's definition of what Asian American is in this country, then they're not going to say, oh, you guys, what are you guys talking about? Unemployment, businesses failing. Y'all are here. And then so that I think is, is, is critical, critically important. Um, and then so from, from the idea of the outline, um, Harrison, was it just a matter of you as a partner saying, I, I, I bless this, go, you have my support or like, was there more, you know, tell me about the process about getting this, I guess for lack of a better term, the green light or the blessing from the firm um, 
to go ahead and, and commission this really meaningful piece of report that we are all now talking about? Yeah, no, I think uh, one of the greatest things uh, about McKinsey is that we're not a public company, right? So uh, as a, one of the few partnerships globally, as long as there is, uh, and I'm not talking about one such as myself, but as long as there's a core group of partners who are passionate uh, about doing something, and of course, a core group of leaders within the, within the, the, the firm, right? Our AAM community who's passionate about doing it, uh, you can make it happen um, one way or another. Uh, beg, borrow, and steal, right? Uh, and I think for for us, you know, we have been very fortunate to uh, not just gotten the chance and not this opportunity to speak with you on this podcast, but as you mentioned, there's many other co-authors and many others who are behind the scenes helping out us crunch data from, you know, various publicly available sources and all these uh, different third-party data, right? So it's really a community-based effort. Uh, and how we sort of, in a way, got it through or got the blessing is that this is not just an Asian uh, and McKinsey report, right? This report is much broader within our diversity and inclusion umbrella, of which there are quote-unquote sister reports with our Black community, our Hispanic and Latino community, our uh, women community, which uh, they're just releasing soon, women in the workplace. Uh, and in fact, we actually utilize much of the data from the McKinsey Global Institute, which is our research arm or think tank, data from the Census Bureau, uh, data from the Bureau of Labor and Statistics, that it can actually help us anchor much of the discussions using a very fact-based and data-driven way. So I think with all that put together, the people, the resources, and the assets, we're able to fortunate enough to, to put this together in a few months' time. That is really, really, like, really amazing because I... And here's the other part that I think people listening might not, you know, perhaps it have it, I don't know, a light bulb moment. Like this also makes a ton of business sense, right? Like while it does the storytelling of the community, like purely from a, you know, capitalistic perspective, like there are people who are going to leverage this report to perhaps engage McKinsey with other projects down the line, right? There are clients of yours who are going to use this and call you to discuss the client report that might be something else. And for a, for, for a firm as McKinsey and all the other global consulting firms, like there is no downside of inclusivity in your academic research, which is the most mind boggling thing when other companies don't do it because it's, this is actually meaningful and profitable, but at least it seems that Harrison, you and the other partners at McKinsey, at least the business reason is a primary reason you do it, but it is certainly a, a benefit and, and something that you are, you know, expectant. It's not, it shouldn't surprise you that this opens conversations, right? Yeah. I, I think on that one, right, um, Jerry, we, we did it because it's the right thing to do. Sure. Beyond any financial or potential monetary uh, uh, follow through, right? Because as I mentioned, we have that voice in the community and we owe it to the community, right? Sure. Um, because yeah. I think the, the ulterior thing is, if I had to spend, you know, a hundred hours leading this report, I'm probably better served spending that hundred hours writing a report on digital or technology or 5G, <laughs> which is sort of right. my expertise area, you know? Sure. So that being yeah. said, right, I, I do think, you know, whatever comes out of it, I, I would call it gravy on top, but I think we, we did it because yeah. it is the right thing to do. And and me personally, I, I read it as, as soon as I think... Elena, it wasn't, I think Daniel had reposted something you did and that's how oh, I like popped up my LinkedIn Daniel. and then, yeah. yeah, and then 
for like half a second. I was like, what the heck? Why didn't you send me this personally? I would have been like all over it. And then I read it and I was like, this is great. This is so exciting. Um, because I, I think some people need objective data. Some people need to be spoken to in the languages that they understand, particularly at the business and policy level where, again, this wasn't, and not that it would, not that it should have made less impact, but if it came from an Asian American advocacy group, a nonprofit or some sort of a community group, the response would have been, of course, you guys are going to say that you guys have a quote unquote, an agenda and your mission is to further amplify your voices. And then, so the fact that it came from you guys and that it had actual data to back it up, it's in addition to personal interviews, that that's where I, I, I thought was super interesting. So Elaine, what was Actually, the, yeah. I was going to say, I think what you, what you were just saying, I just wanted to like put a finer point on it. And I think we've been saying this in different ways, but you know, part of our report, some of the data is from the McKinsey Global Institute, which is kind of our unique, um, you know, uh, research arm. But a lot of it was open source data. You know, it was things from, you know, the U.S. Census Bureau. We leverage other reports and other articles as well to, to create it. And so I think for me, it was the fact that we could publish it and use through the McKinsey, um, I think, uh, platform and through the McKinsey rigor for data and analysis and logic. That to me was a power of this report. It's like what you just mentioned, because I think um, growing up in kind of the social impact world, people had been talking about this in different ways, but it wasn't noticed because it was a social impact group, you know, that was focused on Asian Americans saying something. And so I do just to, you know, echo your point, having a, a company like McKinsey um, really put out this report and kind of overlay it with a little bit of history about Asian Americans, overlay it with interviews and quotes from actual Asian Americans who are living this day in and day out um, was the part that made me just so proud to be able to have that platform and share right. this across. So just wanted to reiterate that. Yeah, no, it, it, it's the credibility, right? And, and and you've pulled from the Census Bureau, you're, you're quoting HBR, you're quoting the Pew Research Group. Like these are standalone, incredibly credible sources of objective fact-based news, and then to pull it all together and saying, you guys didn't think there was a story here if we brought it all together, but this isn't our story. This is actual fact, right? So um, share with us sort of, you, you had the, the idea of the report. You, you put a, a preliminary outline together. The report now is it's a ton of research, a lot of charts. It, it starts with, look, let's take a snapshot look at what Asian America is today. Right. Let's take a look at the demographics of, of differences. Take us through the process, the methodology, sort of the let, let's nerd out for a little bit for the research folks. Like what was the actual process that you guys laid out to say, this is how we want to spend the next X weeks together to work on this? Yeah, let me um, let me. So, yeah, let us nerd out. Let's get into the details. I'll kick it off. And I think Sam will take us home here. So, um. Essentially, after the Slack channel thread where we had a really high level outline, um, we, we knew that, you know, we initially started, I think, for half a week. We, I thought, why don't we just kind of on the side, you know, after I'm done with my quote unquote nine to five job, let me spend some time thinking about this outline. Let us get into some calls with Samuel Harrison and Adrian. And we realized pretty early on that actually to kind of get this up and running to, to the rigor and the quality and the breadth that we wanted it to, we needed kind of heads down time to really think about this. Um, and so working with Harrison and a few other leaders were able to kind of uh, give me an, a week just to actually sit 
and write out one, the proper outline of all the sections in this article, um, our hypotheses of what we think this article will say based on what we know, um, and potential um, research uh, and data, um, you know, sources of insights. So really, over the course of a week, I, I spent half of the time laying it down. Harrison and I had daily um, kind of what we call problem solvings or, or meetings to kind of discuss it, challenge it. And then this is really then when we leverage the power of Asians at McKinsey. Um, we kind of put out a call of, hey, who wants to help us with this report? This may require you digging through articles. It may require you opening up an Excel when you're done with your kind of client work. Um, and I think we got, I don't know, 15 to 20 responses. And so I actually had an Excel where I had every kind of hypothesis per line with potential sources of data and assigned it to someone to kind of look into it. So for example, one was that, you know, I had a hypothesis that um, Asian Americans were, were experiencing an increase in, you know, mental health challenges. And that this was likely leading to, you know, physical impacts, perhaps leading to rises in, in suicide, rises in, in other issues. Here are some quick sources I found online. Can someone go through and actually find out if this is true, figure out the facts and add into this Excel? Um, and that's how we kind of spent the first couple of weeks really kind of refining our, our view and figuring out if the story was, was shaping up to what we thought it would be. Because, you know, we come in with a hypothesis and we wanted to check with the facts. Because um, that's how we kind of spent the first part of this article. Um, and then I'll kick it off to Samuel to kind of share like the, the second half and how it went from Excel to, to article and, and charts and graphs. Sure. We had, I, I think we had a, a basically like a 10 page, thousands and thousands of words outline at this point. And then we converted that into our drafts, got it. We, we had all the like beautiful exhibits created and actually managed to get this translated into Mandarin Chinese. And, and it was also distributed in China with tens and tens of thousands of views, which was very cool. Um, I think the story that we wanted to tell at the end of the day was, you know, First, Asian Americans are here and they're making a difference. And um, second, they are on the front lines of this crisis. And I think a, a lot of people overlook that fact. And so we wanted to share the data that backed it up. Um, three, they're not receiving enough support. And four, there's just not enough known about Asian Americans to support them yet. And so then we followed up with with basically three three action items that policymakers or business leaders could act upon to start making a change. Um, and so uh, a couple of the, I think, really great analyses that we came out of this with was identifying, you know, aside from just the basic demographic data of Asian Americans are 6% of the population, um, they're actually 20% of many frontline occupations. So for example, physicians and surgeons and nurses, they comprise a huge percentage of that health aspect of our COVID response. Um, they're also a huge part of the small businesses and organizations that have also been hit by COVID. So Asian Americans comprise 25% of all food and accommodations businesses in the US. Um, and so, you know, compare that to the 6% of Asian Americans in the population. And I think that's a very entrepreneurial feat. Um, they're also highly represented in educational services and in retail trade. And both of those have also been affected by COVID. And those were new insights that McKinsey helped to come out with. Um, 
On the individual's front, we found a trend that Asian Americans tend to experience the sharpest increases in unemployment during times of economic crisis. So this was both during 08 as well as COVID. Um, so kind of a four to five X increase in unemployment, which is the largest out of all demographic groups, as well as the longest sustained period of unemployment. So I just checked the August numbers um, from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Asian Americans still have around 10% unemployment, while that number has dropped significantly for other demographics. And so if you think about it purely from a COVID perspective, People started going out of work. Businesses started closing their doors in February for Asian businesses because of the xenophobia and the, the exodus from Chinatowns around the country. And that has persisted through August for a lot of these communities and individuals. Um, and so that was one of the, I think, key analyses that we were really proud of getting out of this. And then finally, like as McKinsey, we're always very action oriented. So we wanted to share something that leaders and policymakers and even just everyday people could do. So, you know, one was get the data in order to, to inform your decision making. A lot of times we found that Asian Americans were just grouped into the other bucket when it came to demographics. And so you could think that for organizations that are really data driven and care about these numbers, um, think about Asian Americans at a more granular level, right? Um, there are significant demographic disparities between Chinese Americans and uh, Indonesian Americans. And so to what level of robustness could you get there? Two was actively combat bias. And I think that happens through these explicit statements of support coming out of organizations, but also, you know, those daily actions of how are you showing support? How do you stand up against observations of racism or implicit bias in the workplace and on the streets. And then finally, you know, serve your communities and serve those Asian American communities. How can businesses provide language assistance and language resources? And to your point, Jerry, that really, that's a totally, you know, new market for profit. Um, if you can serve Asian Americans and provide lines of credit or provide language assistance to consumers, then you get a whole new group of consumers that you never tapped into before. And there's evidence of pretty significant spending power among this group. Um, so serve your communities and, and be inclusive was at the end of the day what we did. On, on a broad level, Harrison, um, you, uh, as one of the leaders who were behind the report and obviously, you know, Agents at McKinsey as an as uh, employer resource group, as the report was being put together, what were some of your expectations or hopes that this this report could accomplish and now having been out for a few weeks and it's made its way around the world and um, what are some of your reflections and perspectives on the impact this report has already had um, for you, the firm, and for the community? Yeah. Um, I, I think when we started this journey, to be honest with you, I didn't really know what were the insights that we were expected to get out of this. All I wanted to know was, hey, this is an important topic. We should have a voice. And us as leaders in the firm and the community, we should do something about it. Right. So that was sort of the, the, the genesis. Um, to elaborate a little bit more uh, on what Elaine said, we basically treated this as almost like a McKinsey engagement. 
utilizing the problem-solving process, the seven steps, generating hypothesis, testing it, maybe it worked, maybe it didn't, um, looking at the data and the analytics, right, to make sure it is robust, as well as putting together an overall storyline to talk about the narrative. Because at the end of the day, people care about, you know, the, 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 the sort of the talking points, not necessarily the nth level of degree, right? So I was very proud for our team to almost run this as a, almost as robust, right, uh, as any engagements I've been part of from a thought leadership and, and, and the data analytics perspective. Uh, and from a post-launch or post-publication perspective, uh, we had in place sort of a communication plan in terms of what we wanted to do and who you wanted to tell. Uh, and I think it's centered on three areas. The first one is primarily using the McKinsey platform. So not only did we publish it on you know, the McKinsey URL, mckinsey.com, um, during launch, we were actually on the front page of the McKinsey website. So I think that speaks volume. Um, as Samuel mentioned, we also translated this to Chinese to make sure that our colleagues in greater China and beyond are well, well aware uh, of this topic and what their colleagues uh, in the Western world, in the U.S., are experiencing. So a lot of, you know, readership uh, in our uh, Weibo and our Weixin uh, uh, channel. So beyond sort of the McKinsey channel, it is also talking and linking up with, I would say, um, other Asian American community-based organizations. Um, so I, so far, I've had the, the fortunate, um, you know, discussions with Ascend, which is sort of a leadership group. Um, Asia Society, which will jointly do a, a webinar in a couple of weeks. Uh, Committee of 100, which is primarily a Chinese-based uh, organization. So we're going to do a webinar in uh, October with myself and other CEO. So there's a lot of interest within this community. And I think the third thing is, which is what, by the way, I'm most proud of is, it's not just the Asian American community talking about it, it's the broader mass market media. So with the report, uh, report being launched, uh, it has been cited, uh, um, and the data and statistics on uh, Forbes, um, CBS, uh, and we're currently working on a piece with uh, ABC as well, uh, which hopefully will, will be launched in a couple of days. So I think having the not just the Asian community talking about it, but actually having mass public talk about it, I think that's a very uh, crucial and important part. That's so cool because you rattled off some, like, household names of publications and other Asian community organizations that really, I think when you put it together, it's really powerful. And, and the message that I get from this is that even though it came from a global consulting firm, it's being received well by our own community, which means we did it right, that it had the tones and the cult. It wasn't an outside voice telling a community, this is what we think of you, or this is how you guys should run with it. Um, amazing. Uh, I, I want to ask you the next question individually. Um, and then we'll start with Elaine, go to Samuel and with Harrison. Personally, how has the last three months working on this changed your perspective of the world, the community, your identity, or anything else that it's made a profound impact on? Yeah, wow. Um, okay, so <laughs> to start, how has it changed my life? I think one, on a very personal note, um, it may, it, it showed me personally, I want to focus my energy on kind of, uh, deep thinking when I think about impact socially. So before I was thinking, okay, I'll, I'll do my work and I'll be involved in various things 
in terms when I think about social impact and what's my, what's my like kind of footprint on this world. Um, and I learned about the value of kind of focusing on one project at a time. This is a very tactical note, but just how I kind of want to see myself moving forward is putting my energy into something that I believe may have um, high impact, uh, requires a lot of thinking, but a lot of focus as well. And, and I think that's really kind of shaped how I want to think about myself moving forward and what is my, you know, what is my next kind of project? What is the next thing I want to do when I think about um, the Asian American community, but more broadly, like social impact? I think secondly, uh, we kind of briefly talked about it, but but it's uh, the interest in China and Asia for this article is actually very surprising for me. I think I just realized that the Asian American story resonates with Asians around the world, including in Asia. And that's something that I just never thought would be true um, and that there's lots of commonalities. And I think, you know, we are one big family. Right. So. I think people want to learn about the Asian American story in Asia. And that, that was a new kind of profound uh, like insight for me that I, I just never expected. And I think the, the last thing that it's like shaped for me isn't really new. I've always kind of thought this, but is another kind of uh, example of seeing it come into play is, as we mentioned, um, you know, our MBN McKinsey Black Network, HLN Hispanic Latino Network published the reports. And it made me, See that there's so much commonality when you think about kind of racial inequity in different groups. There's lots of like common stories, common high level facts and, and experiences that we are, you know, um, being higher, you know, higher impact with, with, with uh, contraction rates, higher impact in terms of unemployment. But there's such nuances and differences in terms of how to actually solve that. So it just made me kind of have this profound humanity, humanity moment where it's like, wow, we're so different, but we're all connected and we're actually all very similar as well. And this report is another kind of example of, of me seeing this come into play. So that's how it's impacted my life. Past few months, in short, in, th in short three bullets, if I were to say. <laughs> Classic. Resume, friend, resume friendly. Exactly. How about you, Samuel? For me, uh... I'll just go with two things, two quick things. Um, <laughs> one, I think it it uh, really strengthens my love for this group, for AM and Elaine and Harrison, everybody else who was on this team that made it happen. Uh, truly, I think one of my favorite parts of McKinsey is being a part of this group that gets to do so much and share this knowledge with the world. And I would love to keep doing that. And then the second thing is, um, I think there's still so much to be done and I'm personally very excited to be a, a small part of that process but in doing this we came up with so many additional questions about um i think a lot of questions that asian american ergs and asian americans have about the community you know what does leadership representation look like uh in certain sectors um at different levels of of leadership um how are individuals faring how are businesses and small businesses faring can we run surveys and all of these questions that I think would be super exciting to continue working on. Yeah. Um, I, I think for me, Jerry, um, the first thing is that I've gotten a sense of additional energy and uh, additional level being refreshed uh, in this. Having been in the work from home model um, the last six months, getting the ability to, to work on this report uh, basically reinvigorated even my own personal life and my own personal operating model. 
Um, secondly, I, I don't think we would have been able to pull this off without the passion and the energy and the strength uh, of our community, particularly people like Elaine, Samuel, and the people basically working beyond their regular day job. And it's already a very long day job um, um, to make this happen, right? And these colleagues actually expand beyond just our AAM community, but also into the other diversity inclusion affinity groups out there. Uh, Elaine mentioned the MBN and HLN. These are you know, two very important DNI groups within the McKinsey community. And this is actually the perfect time to band together, to, to be there for one another, and, and to have that allyship um, in place. Um, and I think the third thing, it, it's really about impact, right? It's not just writing a report for the sake of writing a report. It's not you know, just showing a bunch of pretty charts and, and having a couple of numbers. It is really about what people will do about it and have a positive effect and change in the future, right? Uh, so my hope of this is for the readers of the report to you know, stand up, do something, say something, um, whenever they feel that you know, maybe certain situation is not right, or if they have a certain platform, um, whether they be you know, professional athletes or entertainers or business people, or even just a young graduate, you have your own certain view and a certain platform. Um, use it. Use it how you can, uh, because if you don't, then then other people will control the narrative and, and you know control it for you. We just saw it with. Uh, I'm gonna make a Milan joke. Um, just saw it with Milan. If if we don't tell our own stories, somebody who doesn't look like us is going to, and the outcome is probably not going to be. Uh, as, as authentic or as genuine as it could have been. Um, and, and that's the thing, you know, Samuel, you, you started us up with, uh, you know, you didn't even learn about Asian American history in your high level APIB American history classes either. And I don't know what's worse that somebody else distorts our history or that we never tell it. Um, either way, those are not the outcomes that we want. And um, as, as we all sit, sit on this call and folks that are listening, um, our parents hustled their ass off so that we could have this opportunity. And it wasn't so that we could have the fancy job titles and, you know, whatever luxuries or comforts that we have in the world. It is then the big question is, in addition to that, then what is our uh, obligation and our, um, you know, duty to then make it even a better place, right? Like, I don't think our parents ever thought about like identity or representation or self-actualization. They were busy surviving, literally. And then so... It's not like we, we can't shame them for not having thought of why didn't you speak up at the school board meeting? Because they were working, right? Why didn't you complain about the textbooks? They didn't even know. Um, and so now it's on us to say, okay, cool. Now we have all the, not only do we have the insight and the experiences to speak from, but we have the, the access and the opportunity because when you speak, people listen, right? Based, maybe because of uh, the position you have at a certain organization or the position you have within your school or local governments, um, people will listen to you. Um, I have been so inspired by all of you guys. And um, I, I do want to take a moment. I know we mentioned some names earlier in addition to the three of you uh, that were critical and, and that are named authors on the report. And then they are uh, Adrian Kwok, Michael Park, and Emily Yue. Um, but we also want to give a big, big special shout out to Michael Chu, Jocelyn Graham, Joe Gupta, Vincent Huang, Anthony Liu, Miles Mann, Richard Shin, Michelle Singh, Zoe Wilkinson, 
Lorena Yi, Toby Yi, and to everybody who is part of the Asians at McKinsey Slack channel, and for everybody else who has been supportive, and especially to the other colleagues, uh, the partners of your other engagements, uh, who uh, probably gave time and space to take certain calls or to focus on this, knowing that in addition to the work that pays the bills at a consulting firm, that this was important enough and, and to give space and attention to this. Um, and if you thought that list was long, it's probably longer than that in reality, but it just speaks to the volume of how complex and how, um, you know, thoughtful this report process was, was deliberately taken by this team. And, and so, um, so much thanks, um, personally, um, as, as a professional and as somebody who's been in a consulting firm and knowing some of the challenges of politics and, and having our voice heard, um, it's extra meaningful for me. It is exciting uh, for a big company with as much uh, credibility as you guys have to say, yes, we think that Asian voices matter. And we talked a little bit earlier about that 6% number, but you know, the, the way that I define and the opportunity to share Asian American stories uh, through the English spoken medium is not 6% of 360 million, which is about 18 million in the States. It's actually how many ever of the 4 billion Asians globally speak English well enough to listen to my voice? And my guess is it's about a billion people. So when, when firms and when other organizations ignore the Asian American voice because we're just 6%, I kind of smile and say, I, I, don't, I don't think you're, the denominator's wrong, dude. You know, your, <laughs> your, your perspective on how big our opportunity is wrong because it is a globalized world and we have family and friends and colleagues and you know, all over the world that actually is the audience and is the opportunity. And COVID's impact on Asian America doesn't stop stateside. Our finances, our families, our economies are so intertwined that this is actually such globally connected issues. So um, thank you guys for what you've done. Um, I know that we are just at the beginning of this report getting out and being shared um, to the right people. Um, sometimes businesses and, and governments move slowly, but, you know, this was not a one point in 2020 sort of a report. Uh, we hope that this continues to make its impact for, for years to come. We want to wrap the show in the same way that we end all of our shows. And it is with an opportunity for each of you to share your own thoughts, comments, uh, words of inspiration, perhaps to a younger versions of yourself, perhaps to somebody that you mentor or whoever it might be. Uh, and it doesn't have to be about work. It doesn't have to be about anything in particular, but anything that comes to your heart that you want to share with the Asian American community. Again, we'll start with Elaine and we'll wrap around to uh, Samuel and Harrison. Elaine, if you could help us finish out the show and complete the letter, Dear Asian Americans. Uh, dear Asian Americans, um, I think there's two things I want to say. So one is know your worth. Um, know that you are worthy and you are enough. Um, no matter what failures or successes you have, you are enough as you are. Um, and so keep hang on to that uh, and, and keep it close to you and, and make sure you, you know that you are worthy as you are today. And the second piece is know your mortality. Um, know that life is fragile, um, that you could lose it um, at any time, that others can as well. And use that to give you clarity on what matters. Um, I didn't share it uh, today, but one of the most profound moments of my life that has really shaped 
uh, not just my identity, but just who I am as a human is I, I experience a near death experience. And I think having time to reflect on the fact that I, I may die has given me so much clarity on what really matters has made me not second guess a lot of my decisions on how I want to spend my time, who I want in my life. And I hope that for Asian Americans, for my future children, that they kind of hang on to the fragility of life in order to kind of see it as a profound gift and something that you shape uh, and, and that you should kind of uh, keep with you to make sure that you're living it to what matters to you. Thank you for sharing that. Samuel, help us finish out the show and finish the letter. Dear Asian Americans. Dear Asian Americans, we have a, a unofficial saying in our Asian at McKinsey group, um, which is it's a great time to be Asian. And I couldn't agree more. I think it's a great time to be Asian. I think it's a great time to be Asian American in the workplace and in society. I think it is a time to be proud to um, to learn about our histories and also a time to speak up because if you're not speaking, then no one is listening. Thanks. If you're not speaking, nobody's listening. Those are, wow, that one, that one's going to make it onto one of those picture tiles that we're going to use. <laughs> <laughs> um, Harrison, uh, finish the letter, dear Asian Americans. Dear Asian Americans, um, my only advice is to speak up. Um, the, the future is yours. Whether it be speaking up uh, relating to your day-to-day -day life, um, navigating your own career path, um, finding the right set of mentors, really reach out and find those people, to even situations where you may observe in general public life where something is not right, whether it's people getting abused or people looked down upon, speak up when the situation is not right. Because you deserve the, the, the right to uh, do the right thing for our community. And uh, if you don't do it, nobody else will. Thank you. And I want to thank the listeners who've stuck it with us through the entire episode. Not a short one, but I think a very, very impactful one, uh, full of lessons from all three of our amazing guests from various walks of life. And I think it's easy to judge a book by its cover and saying, hey, here are these three privileged Asian folks who work at McKinsey who wrote a report about COVID's impact on McKinsey. What can we learn from those guys? And I hope that perhaps if you had some of those, you know, presumptions coming in that you're walking away with a newfound understanding that we all come from different walks of life. If we don't speak, nobody listens. We're going to die. Like that's a fact. Nobody has proven that fact wrong, right? And so why not use your life to not only make your life better for yourself in this moment, but to do it for your children, just like our parents sacrificed so much to provide this opportunity through education and, and work for us. And not only do you guys say these words, I think you've literally lived it by committing so much time and effort and energy and love to creating this report that I, again, think will serve the community in such a positive way for years to come. Big shout out to all the members of Asians at McKinsey and to all of the Asian ERGs out there globally, just going through such challenging times, trying to commune and to program things digitally. And if you work at a large company and you don't have an ERG, 
Um, I encourage you to uh, reach out to folks around you. It just takes one conversation with the right person to say, hey, we need to do it. And here it might be the most blunt thing of the, the, there's no better time than 2020 to ask your leadership or HR to say, hey, I think we need an Asia and ERG. There's probably a better chance that they're going to fully support you. And if you want our advice, if you want our help, if you want our perspectives, do reach out. As Harrison mentioned, he's made a part of his mission to create an entire generation of leaders, not just at his firm, but globally in all that we do, because we are not defined by our work. We are not defined by the place that we work or the thing that we do, but through the impact that we live, uh, that we leave for years to come. So, man, um, so much, so much thanks to each and every single one of you joining us in addition to the, you know, we always put nine to five in quotes in consulting. I can't imagine how much work has been, or I guess the, all the travel time has been replaced by even more work <laughs> um, during during the work at home periods of, of uh, COVID-19. So immense and, and forever gratitude to you guys. Keep on doing what you're doing. We are grateful for the work that you've done and the message that you've shared, but most importantly, the lives that you lead through which we can learn through observation and through inspiration. So Harrison, Samuel, Elaine, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Jerry. Thank you. Thank you again, Jerry. Thank you so much for tuning in again. Um, And big, big, big thanks to Harrison, Samuel, and Elaine for making the time out of their busy lives. Actually, Elaine was on PTO, and she made sure that um, she made time for us to have this conversation. So big thanks to Elaine and for all the work that the entire team did in creating this report and to really make sure that Asian American community has actual factual information and scientific and statistical information to share our story of how we are being disproportionately impacted and continue to by COVID-19 and how organizations, whether you're a private business or a government entity or a nonprofit entity, can help engage the Asian American community as we come out of COVID-19 together. If you found this episode fun and engaging, I encourage you to share it out with a friend, screenshot it, tag us on Instagram, or just to tell a friend about it. On Instagram, we are at Dear Asian Americans. We are the same on Facebook, where we also have a community group. On Twitter, we are at Dear Asian Am. So wherever you can find us, I encourage you and I ask you to come join us along for the ride. Get to know fellow listeners and let's have some fun together. I want to thank our Patreon members. So if you want to support the show to help us cover some of the costs and to build community, we encourage you to join our Patreon community. The links also can be found in the show notes. If you want to shoot us a note, you can find us in the Instagram DM box at Dear Asian Americans, or you can just simply shoot us an email. Hello at Dear Asian Americans. Thanks again so much for tuning in. Again, we're just 101 days left here in 2020. Let's make the most of it. Six weeks, 42 days until the election that can really impact the rest of ours and our future generations' lives. So make sure to vote and make sure to um, tell a friend to vote. Thanks so much. I will see you here next week. And we will be sharing at that time the audio version of the conversation that I'll be having later this afternoon with Sarah Park, Sun Win, and Carl Chen for our careers webinar. Thanks so much, as always, for listening. Hope you're staying safe, healthy, and happy wherever you are. And I wish you well. This has been your host, Jerry Wan of Dear Asian Americans, and I will see you next week.